And we have Jesus in the first ten verses of 11 riding into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt in a very humble way, but acclaimed by the crowds that are lining his route, uh, who've more or less rolled out the carpet for him as they've put uh, branches and, and cloaks and so forth on the path that he's riding over, and uh, who are shouting praise to him, praise to the Lord in uh, what he's doing. So, it's really uh, a time of great expectation for the people. And uh, probably this event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem is probably on Sunday, uh, and he'll be crucified on Friday. So we can pretty, pretty carefully determine the dates, the, the days of the week almost here in these accounts. So, um, and the next section is rather an involved section, typical Mark, even though I think this was because the events occurred this way, but you have a story within a story. And anytime you have a story within a story, I think you ought to look for the connections of those two stories. So we'll, we'll read the whole thing uh, that encompasses both stories and then try to uh, figure out what this is all about. So chapter 11, and somebody read 11 to 26. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, who is in heaven, forgive your transgressions. Okay. So, uh, Jesus, in 11, comes into Jerusalem, into the temple, looks around, and leaves. That's on Sunday, we think. Early the next morning, he's coming back from Bethany. By the way, um, what famous uh, family lived in Bethany? Yes, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And uh, maybe who he's staying with at this point. I think that's a logical conjecture. But he uh, comes back in, 
and he's hungry, and what does he see? There's a fig tree in leaf. And uh, he comes up to see if there's any figs on it. Are there? No. Only leaves, no figs. Why weren't there any figs on this tree? Yeah, it wasn't the season for figs. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, basically he puts a curse on the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And <laughs> that seems a little odd, don't you think? Um, no many inanimate objects that Jesus cursed. Um, and so I think at this point that should leave us kind of scratching our head wondering what in the world is this? We don't have time to scratch our heads long because we get immediately into the next uh, story, this, this story that's engulfed by the story of the fig tree. But uh, we'll, we'll have occasion to come back and think about uh, the purpose and meaning of this fig tree incident. So I'm not going to really look at that yet, but you have some questions and comments through verse 14 uh, before we move on and then eventually go back to the fig tree and talk about what it means. Alright, so they come on into Jerusalem, come into the temple. Now, when we say he came into the temple, what do we really mean? He entered the temple complex, the whole big area, not like the Holy of Holies or anything like that. Yes, not even like the holy place, not even like the courtyard where the altar of burnt offering and the, the laver was, only you know, priests and Levites would even be in that area. But there were a series of courtyards around that. And Jesus was in those courtyards that were surrounding what we might have thought of as the temple itself. And what what did he find in the temple here? People buying some goods. Mm, so is this kind of like a flea market or a supermarket or what are they buying and selling? They were money changers and they were also buying and selling doves. Okay. Well, why buying and selling doves? Who wants to buy doves anyway? Yes, one-stop shopping. <laughs> you know, you can get certified clean animals right there in the temple. You know, and you don't have to bring them with you. Many of the uh, people, especially during the Passover season, that would come here to the temple would be out-of-town worshipers. Maybe some of them traveled a long distance, so it's quite convenient. You buy your animals for sacrifice right there and take it, you've got to just bring it right there to the uh, temple personnel, and they'll sacrifice it for you. So they made this very convenient for the worshiper. And perhaps somewhat convenient for themselves. Uh, they, you know, it's certainly a good place to set up shop if you're wanting to sell sacrificial animals. What about this money changer business? Why have money changers there at the temple? People coming from a long way don't have the kind of money place there. You're right. And why would they have especially needed that kind of money? I don't, maybe, but the dove sellers might have accepted foreign currency, I don't know. But there was a, there was a tax on the temple. A half shekel. 
Yes, that half shekel tax that had to be paid in the Jewish coin. And so at least for that, they needed money changers to be able to pay that tax. Well, one of them is Matthew 17, where the um, uh, the people ask uh, Peter whether Jesus paid that tax or not. That's Matthew 17, 24 and following. And uh, my marginal notes suggest uh, a couple of passages. Exodus 30, 13, I'd have to look at it. I don't remember exactly where uh, in the Old Testament it talked about that tax. Uh, yeah. That, that's a good one. Exodus 30, 13. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. So every person had to pay the half shekel temple tax. Amen. Yes. And so things were uh, proceeding along quite uh, well in the temple that particular day when Jesus comes in, but it didn't continue that way long. What did Jesus do? Turn over the tables. Yeah, and? Yeah. Now, do you have a picture of this in your mind? What would, you, what would your impression of this had been if you'd been there? There's a crazy man running through the temple courtyards, pushing everybody out and turning things over and causing a ruckus. Yes. Leanne? Who does he think he is? Yes. This is, this is violent. Mm-hmm. This is kind of mayhem. You know... Here's this guy running the people out, um, apparently from some of the other accounts, made a whip to, I assume, use on the animals. Uh, And, you know, when we say overturning these tables, now what are you envisioning? You know, get two guys, pick it up, turn it over, you know, sit it down lightly. Yeah, I'm I'm picturing him just going through and just knocking these things helter-skelter, the coins going everywhere, and just, you know, on a rampage. And he was angry. He was infuriated. And just, wow. I mean, and you think about, I mean, I know, would you go somewhere and do that? I mean, I don't know what would be a good parallel for us. You know, can, can you think of, uh, this is maybe a little bigger than what we, we need to think of, but can you think of somebody going into Walmart and running out everybody and starting to knock down the shelves and knock off the stuff and and doing things like that. What would you think if somebody started doing that? Police. Police, yeah, absolutely. And this is, or even somebody comes into the church building and, and, and you know, gets a whip and starts cracking it and sending people out and, and overturning the pews and the Lord's Supper table and the pulpit stand and whatever. I mean, we'd be... I don't know. <laughs> you you would not soon forget that. So uh, this really um, just just on the f- surface, this is an action of Jesus that that doesn't seem to fit his character. At least not the character we've come to think of Jesus as having. Did you expect Jesus to do something like this? What does it seem? Out of control. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really does. Seems like he's lost his temper, or maybe his, his mind. You know, it's out of control. You know, you expect him to be calm and meek and controlled and all that. Um, do you have any idea, you know, why he'd do something like that? So? It's God's house. Who's God to Jesus? His father. What would happen if, um, well, most of you live at home, but you can imagine if you're somewhat older, I guess even if you're living at home, and uh, you go into your parents' house, maybe, maybe they've, uh, you know, left town for a few days or whatever, and it's been invaded. I mean, so people have taken over the house. And they're having a big party, and they're selling stuff. They've got customers coming in right and left, trampling on the carpet, and, you know, maybe they got animals in there they're selling, and, you know, what would you do? Get out of my house. I mean, that would be infuriating. You know, if this is your parents' house, um, you just wouldn't put up with that. It'd just be a, Wow. I think that's Jesus' attitude. What they've done in his father's house is an outrage. Because it was supposed to be his father's. It was a house of prayer, and they turned it into a stockyard and, and uh, uh, a cambio, a money-changing place. Um, this is just, this is wow. He is upset. He, Jesus gets upset when his father is disgraced and blasphemed. Comments and questions, thoughts as we're going through this. <clears throat> Why does he do this now instead of in verse 11? That's an interesting question. It says he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Could it be that Jesus intentionally chose prime time? That he wanted this to be uh, to receive maximum maximum exposure, and so he intentionally he looked around, he sized things up, and then he left and came back at a time when everybody'd be there. That'd be my take. Since it was late, some of them may already have been gone. Sure, not as much business going on. Did they know who he was? Yeah, I would think so. At least, I think a, a sizable number would have known who he was. Uh, certainly, the Jewish leaders knew who he was. Um, Jesus had been in Jerusalem a few times. There's a lot of Galileans down there, too, and a lot of people in Galilee knew who he was. So, you know, not that every single person would have known who he was, but yeah, he was a pretty well-known figure. That, that's my, my feeling about it. Of course, it... Mentioned or permitted in the old law to buy your sacrifice like that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the Passover lamb, and you know, it's like you're supposed to get it on one day and then keep it for a week or however long it is, and you know, and then slaughter it. Kind of get a personal connection with the lamb is, I guess, the idea. But I didn't know if that happened with any other. Just kind of short-circuited that 
mechanism? I don't have a good answer to that. In practicality, it probably wasn't possible for people coming from a long distance to bring their own animals. So, but I, I don't know that there's any real provision in the law for buying them. Somebody got us all about that. Other thoughts and comments as we want to do this. And why do you think ultimately, though, if he was doing this at this time in order to have a greater audience, do you think it was to um, was it to make the impression upon them about the attitude they ought to have toward God, so that more would see that? Is it so that more would maybe become outraged at him, you know, and, and have more of a desire to put him to death? Well, I guess I would uh, assume that he wants the people to see his zeal for, for God. And he wants them to do the right thing. But I think also this is showing some of the reason behind God's anger with the Jews. I think this... I think this is all connected with really the crisis that is going on. As the people are rejecting Jesus, Jesus is, uh, the Lord is rejecting the people. And he's rejecting their temple. I mean, really, the, the place where God's dwelling is changing. He's no longer dwelling in this physical temple. He's dwelt in Jesus, and then he'll dwell in Jesus' people. And so I think this may be part of that whole conflict. Jesus has a lot to say in Matthew, especially about the uh, Jewish, um, the Pharisees and scribes and, and all their errors, and then goes into the, you know, as he does in Mark, the destruction of Jerusalem and all that sort of thing. And so I, I wonder if this isn't a part of that. It doesn't give a lot of detail to the, to the story. Yeah. So you don't see a lot of the, maybe the feeling and the, the emotion. I've often wondered how he could even accomplish that. You know, it seems like the people would rebel and, you know, if they're really entrenched in that and, and whatever, but it, it gives no indication that, you know, that he used any miracle or anything to accomplish it. It just drove them out. Well, and you know another thing that ought to be brought in here that's kind of, I'm not sure what this does to all these questions, but this isn't the first time he did it. He did it in John 2, at the beginning of his ministry. Very, very similar. And there are plenty of people, various, uh, you know, stripes who think it's the same event. I don't think it can be the same event. I think John's clearly placing it early in Jesus' ministry, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are clearly dating this one at the end of his ministry, or Matthew and Mark. I think Luke does this too, I don't remember. But anyhow. Um, so I think there are two... Uh, but but it's in, twice they I mean he he manages to do it. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that for sure. Um, I suppose there could be some sense in which you know somebody who just comes in with great frenzied zeal sometimes they do quite a bit before they get stopped. You know nobody's really expecting it. And he's kind of, 
you know, it kind of almost happens before you realize what's happening. Some have suggested, I don't know how to evaluate this. Could it be that the people sort of knew they weren't supposed to be doing this anyway? And that their conscience may have also... If you feel guilty, you're more quick to withdraw. <laughs> you know, if you know you're doing something wrong, and <clears throat> somebody questions you, you oh, oh, okay, I, I won't, yeah, that, that, you know. So I don't know. And then, <laughs> then he begins to teach. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, which tells you what? I could see the timid people peeking back in the door and, oh, he's calmed down now and now he's teaching. Well, what does that show you about Jesus in this? His intentions. Yes. You know, while this is a very, um, I don't know, powerful display of outrage, Jesus really is not out of control. This is not Jesus just losing his temper and blowing up. He's doing what he purposes to do. You know, he is angry, but angry in a controlled way. Um, so, so, and, and the fact that he starts teaching shows that. Well, what about this question? I might as well throw this out since I brought this up. A lot of people ask. You know, what about if Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry? Why were they back doing this again? Because he left. I think that's exactly right. I, I always will remember, this reminds me so much of this, when we were passing out flyers a lot of times on the streets of Sao Paulo, there were certain times where the city government would go through, on these, these are pedestrian streets, and there would be street vendors with like old big blankets and big pieces of plastic and things like that that set up shops selling all kinds of stuff trinkets and clothes and I don't know whatever practically anything you wanted to buy you could buy from the street vendors that were technically the black market you know technically they were not legal they were not paying taxes half of Brazil's economy doesn't pay taxes you know half of it's underground uh, and they they could sell cheaper and whatever but there were times when the city government would come through with their big truck and you know three or four thugs and they they'd come through and drive through and grab this stuff well of course you know what happened as soon as they started coming through you've never seen a street be transformed any quicker in your life <laughs> suddenly whoo, everybody vanishes you know they go into doors and I, where are they going <laughs> when i suddenly saw whoo, I knew uh, the truck must be coming through. And I, I never will forget. I wish I had gone to, to try to encourage him or do something. I thought about it and I didn't. Maybe I would have gotten in trouble. But there was one probably 12-year-old, 11-year-old boy that they had grabbed his blanket or whatever with his stuff. And he was fighting him tooth and toenail, screaming and crying and carrying on. And I never, did, I never stayed with him to see what happened to him. But thinking back, I realized probably he was going to be really responsible to somebody for that. And, you know, you could tell he was just, he was just so upset. And I, you know, I wish I'd have gone and, you know, given him $50 or something to help him out with that. But, uh, but the thing I pointed that out for is, it's fascinating, because I was standing there passing out flyers, and you'd see that happen. 
oh, in about 30 or 45 minutes, one would come back. And then another, and then another. And within two or three hours, you never knew what happened. It was hilarious. You know, I don't know. I think the city government was probably just more or less making a point or maybe even trying to impress the shopkeepers that would maybe not have wanted these street vendors. That, oh, yeah, we're trying to do something. I don't know. But, but so I can certainly imagine in two or three years, these people come back and, you know, continue to go on as if nothing happened. Uh, but, but, but for some reason, they do allow Jesus two different times to do this. So it may be that they've got a guilty conscience. And this would have been, this would have been like a busy season for them yes. as well. Yes, yes. If they had stayed away at other times, you know, it's just the normal flow of traffic in and out of the temple, but we're coming up on a, a feast day and there are going to be more people, there's going to be more business, you can't miss out on... And the first cleansing was at the Passover as well. Yeah, both times. Mark. <coughs> do you think what they were doing was technically wrong, just the way they were doing it? Yeah. That's what I think. I can't help it. It just amazes me how... how focused... The, I mean, we're, we're going to see later about when the scribe and chief priests hear about it, how physical they had become. All these things they were focused on about the about the money and all these other things. It was no longer about praising God. It was no longer about, you know, worshiping Him. It was all about what they could get out of it. And I can't help but wonder if we don't do that sometimes as well. We served God for so long, we might come to think and maybe even unconsciously, what am I getting out of this, or am I doing it more just to raise God? I can see that in my life sometimes. Which leads, I think, into, so what's the deal with the fig tree on either side of this? Do you see the connection? physical and the spiritual side of it, I guess, the faith and, the, and, and what it appears on the outside and what it really is, I mean, kind of a contrast or a, a, a object lesson or something like that, both of them, I think. Yes, I think that's on the right track. What's the problem with the fig tree? They're getting fruit. No fruit. What's the problem with the Jewish nation? No fruit. No fruit. Plenty of leaves. Lots of show. A lot of doves. A lot of doves. <laughs> but no real fruit. There's no real um, commitment to the Lord. Yes? Um, my church just did a study for this. Uh, I go to Mount Pleasant. And we talked also about how like it can also represent like, being a Christian. Like, the, the people there were um, on the outside doing like, a big show. But they weren't bearing any fruit. They weren't doing anything for Jesus. And that fig tree wasn't bearing any fruit. It wasn't doing anything for Jesus. So that's why he cursed it. Because that's not the type of Christian that we're called to be. Yeah. And the fact that we may have lots of leaves may be deceptive. And may make us think we're doing okay. They were doing big business in the temple. You know, lots was going on. Lots of activity. Almost makes you think it must be they must be doing fine. You know, the fig tree had lots of leaves, looked good, seemed to be thriving, but there was no fruit. And you can apply this to our individual lives, you can apply it to churches. There's churches that 
you know, may have beautiful buildings, may have, you know, moving worship services, may have big programs of various sorts, but there's no fruit, there's no righteousness, there's no love, there's no faithfulness to what God says. You know, it takes more than just the activity and the appearance. It takes fruit. And I think what happens to the fig tree, as we're going to see in a minute, is really what God was going to do to the whole nation. They weren't bearing fruit. God was going to curse them and they were going to wither. And you see it right here in the, in the temple. This is their house of worship. This is God's house, a house of prayer for all the nations. And they've turned it into something, you know, very unworthy of that. They really weren't bearing fruit. They just had a lot of leaves. So it is good. You know, you think about, think about the temple of God today. What would you say the temple of God is today? Alright. Debbie's pointing to our body. 1 Corinthians 6 shows that. So in our body, in our lives, are we bearing fruit? Or just do we just have leaves? What else is the temple? The church. The church. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3. So as, as Christians, you know, even together, are we putting on a show that seems impressive? Or are we really bearing the fruit of righteousness and good works and faithfulness to God? Alright, comments and thoughts uh, through verse 17. They made it a robber's den. And I think a lot of times, for a long time, misunderstood that. The robber's den is not where the robbers do their robbing. It's where the robbers go to count their spoils and be their, their hideout or their safe zone. And that's, that's what they felt like in the temple. They were un, untouchable there. Exactly. That's precisely right. That's Jeremiah 7. Where in Jeremiah's day, they kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought they could never be destroyed, that God would never judge them because they were at the temple. Well, <laughs> he said, you made it into robber's den. You're just using the temple as kind of a rabbit's foot to exempt you from punishment, even though your conduct is corrupt. And that's the way these leaders have done. That their lives are wrong, but they, they've got the temple, and it's kind of their, their hideout, it's kind of their security blanket. And little did they know the Lord was going to bring it crashing down around them. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, the first 15 <coughs> verses or so. Other thoughts or comments through 17? Well, the chief priests and scribes hear this, and man, they're ready to get rid of him. They are so angry. I mean, Jesus come into their very place of business and try to tell them how to run things and, you know, run people off and, you know, whatever. I mean, this is just, ah, man, they are so upset. But they got a problem. What's their problem? 
Yeah, why? Because they're astonished by the teachings. Yeah, the people are impressed with Jesus. If they tried to just come and arrest him by force, they'd probably get mobbed to death. You know, so this is a touchy situation for them. They they want so badly to get rid of him. They gotta watch it. Or they're they're gonna lose their necks. So then, evening comes. They go out of the city, coming back in the next morning, and lo and behold, the fig tree. What's happened to it? Withered from the roots up. Yeah, just the same way that the nation and the temple will be. And Peter's like, look at this fig tree, the one that, that you cursed. It's withered. <laughs> what do you see in that? Like fish. A little slow, <laughs> you know. Like he's surprised. <laughs> I do believe to the very end, every new miracle shocks the disciples. Is there any time Jesus did something new and they're like, well, yeah, we'd expected that. <laughs> and isn't that where we are? You know, we know we should be able to trust the Lord, but every new crisis, we despair, unwilling to trust Him in this one. Because we've never seen Him handle this one. Handle all the others, but this is a different one. <laughs> and uh, it's just amazing. Jesus does something kind of interesting with this. He really doesn't present the lesson that I think is obvious so far. Jesus goes a step beyond this. He takes us in a different direction to teach something more. Something we probably wouldn't have even thought about thinking about with this. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. So what does Jesus use this as a lesson for? Having faith in what sense? Having faith in God, having faith in what He can do. Having faith in what He can do in what sense? In what you ask for? Yes. Having faith in God's answering prayer. Having faith and therefore turning to Him in prayer and trust. They're surprised the fig tree withered up. Jesus is saying, well, don't be surprised. Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast in the sea, that it'll have, you know, just, you're surprised because of the fig tree. Um, and, and he generalizes to say, you know, whatever, you know, you ask for. All things for which you pray and ask, in verse 24, believe that you've received them and they will be granted you. Now, I've often thought about that dream Solomon had. Remember what, is, what God told Solomon in a dream? What did he tell him? Ask for anything. Yeah. Ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Remember what Solomon asked? Wisdom. Wisdom. Did God give it to him? Everything. Yeah, 
Read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> yeah, I gave him a ton of wisdom. And, uh, but, but you know, have you ever thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome? God comes to you in a dream one night and says, hey, whatever you want, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, what about this? That's not a dream. That's what God's promised all of us. And I think that thinking about it that way ought to be helpful to us. Now, that raises a few questions, like, ever known anybody levitate a mountain? Could you? This is literal. This says that you could. Well, why hasn't anybody done it? how David Copperfield did all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I mean, perhaps that's uh, an obvious uh, point to make. Um, you know, I haven't seen the Rockies go anywhere in a long time. Uh, so, so, what about that? It's a sign that there's more doubt than faith. Maybe. Well, maybe. It's not this passage, but one of the others that says a similar thing. Jesus said if you had faith like a mustard seed. I think it was Luke 17. How big is a mustard seed? So if you have just a little teensy-weensy amount of faith, and you say, and so I don't think the, the quantity of faith is really in question here. Uh, people say that all the time. You would just, if we really had that kind of faith. You know, when, when people do that, and they focus on, you know, the adequacy and the abundance of our faith, I think it gets things out of proportion. Because then we start focusing on us and how much faith we have. I think the point of this is the power of God, not in fact, some people will talk about the power of faith, power of believing, even the power of positive thinking. And it becomes all that you can do if you really believe. Well, this is not anything about all you can do with anything. It's what God does when you turn to Him. And it's not because you had such incredible faith. You know, mustard seed faith will do. So I don't think the answer to understanding this is in trying to enlarge the faith and make it something that practically nobody's ever managed to have. But the fact remains, I haven't seen many mountains going anywhere. So what do you do, how do you deal with that? Is it figurative language? I think it is. Um... So I have a theory then. Oh, I want your theory. <laughs> well, he talks about this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, being taken up and cast into the sea. And you have the mountain representing the word of God and the sea representing the nations. And so the word of God is being spread over the nations. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're asking and you don't doubt, this does happen. You do spread the word that way. That's, that's like creative. It's in theory. <laughs> that's creative. I think that might be too specific. 
But that is creative. That's cool. <laughs> um, I had never thought about that. Uh, what if we generalize a little bit more and think about the use of mountain imagery in the Bible? Now, there's a lot to be said about this. I've got a sermon I preach on this. I didn't bring my notes, so if you want any more references than what I can leg off off the top of my head, I've got a few more. But I want you to think about how the Bible uses mountains. A great passage for this is Zechariah 4, which is in the context of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets uh, motivating the people of Israel to begin again the daunting project of building the temple after they quit with just the laying of the foundation. Zechariah 4 and uh, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who's the governor who's overseeing the project, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace on it. Now, he's telling Zerubbabel, and you can look on down even uh, a little bit farther. Uh, verse uh, 9 says Zerubbabel will finish the temple. He laid the foundation, he'll finish it. But, but this is encouragement to Zerubbabel that even though this appears to be an overwhelming task, God is saying not by human strength but by his spirit it will be accomplished and the great mountain that's before him this impossible task, it so seems, God will turn that great mountain into a plain. And he's going to accomplish this, even though it seems insurmountable. That's, that would be a good biblical illustration of, of a mountain that God says he will remove if we ask him. Because that, this mountain was removed by God, turned into a plain, so that Zerubbabel, could do his work. Now there's there's another passage on uh, mountain moving that you all know. You might not have thought about it in this way. But I bet every, almost everybody in here knows the passage. What is it? In the prophets, quoted in the New Testament. No, Isaiah 2 has a mountain. Different chapter of Isaiah. Mountains being shaken. No, Isaiah 40. Remember that? <clears throat> no, you'll know this when you get there. And remember what the fulfillment of this was. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every mountain be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And all that. You remember who that's talking about? John the Baptist, who smoothed the path for the coming of Jesus. Through his preaching, the mountains were brought down, the valleys were filled up, and he allowed a clear path for the Lord Jesus to come. Um, so there is another, um, perhaps impenetrable barrier that God smooths out through the preaching of John the Baptist. Uh, here's another passage, and if I can, uh, I just lost where it was at, uh, in my head. Um, I have to get this one back in my mind, and I may or may not. Uh, Isaiah 41, uh, I think, yeah. Isaiah 41, yeah, I love this one. 
I don't know if you know this passage, but this is cool. Isaiah 41, 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, how's he picturing Israel, Jacob, there as a what? Worm. Now, uh, you've, some of you heard me talk about this passage before, surely, but um, what's, the, what's the biggest characteristic of a worm? Aids dirt. Aids dirt. Spineless. Small. Small. But Disgusting. <laughs> We've got a colloquial word we'd use for a worm that I think sums up a worm's characteristics. Slimy? Squishy. Squishy. And that, a worm has absolutely no, no structure. You know, there's no bones, there's no, I mean, I think a worm's about the squishiest thing there is. Wouldn't you agree? So, kind of rough, actually. <laughs> kind of rough? My dad, we, well, they're squishy, but like when you eat them. You know what I'm talking about? Eating. <laughs> <laughs> we did it as a day for Halloween, and so we tried to, like, as a contest to see if you could do it at a Halloween party I had. Could you do it? Yeah. How many do you eat? Huh? How many do you eat? I thought like two. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it'd be twenty or no. Not that right. But but now you think about it. I mean, worms are just so so. Yeah, just man. I mean, even a little kid step on a worm and it just squishes all over the place. Uh, so he pictures God's people as a worm, and then look at verse fifteen. Behold, I've made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thrash the mountains and pulverize them. You will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. Now, I'm not sure which figure to think of this as being. Here's the one I like. I'm not sure it's the best one. I like the idea of this mountain being like what the enemies are throwing on the worm to try to squish it. How big a mountain would it take to squish a worm? Yeah. So, this is like overkill. You know, can you imagine that the nation's picking up this huge mountain and they're throwing it onto this worm. I mean, this thing will splatter, you know, to smithereens. Except God makes Israel into this huge chopper and just pulverizes the mountain and spits it out as dust that the wind carries off. That's what God does to a mountain. When it's a force that's ranged against his people. Or maybe this is maybe the better image is the worm is facing a mountain that he's trying to trying to you know go through, and so this chopper you know just eats its way right through the mountain, and and you know he's able to go through the tunnel. I'm not sure which of those figures is the right one, but either way, the idea is the mountain represents things like powerful forces, formidable, formidable tasks, impenetrable barriers that by God's strength are dissolved uh, for God's people. So I think with that and, and perhaps some other passages that, that I'm not remembering at the moment, um, that, that we ought to see the mountain being cast into the sea reference as Jesus not trying to say, hey guys, try your, try your hand at Mount Tabor, see what you can do, you know, but using a common biblical metaphor to say that, hey, withering this fig tree is nothing. You know, what the Lord's able to do in response to prayer 
in terms of all sorts of, of mountains and tasks and impossible situations is, is much greater. And uh, maybe next week I'll think about it. I'll bring my sermon. We can start with a few applications that I've made there. But, but you think about how many times spiritually we have a task that seems like a mountain. We have opposition that seems like a mountain. We have a temptation that seems like an irresistible mountain. But God is stronger than the mountain. And the same God that withered the fig tree can deal with the mountains in our lives. And we need to trust him and turn to him. And so Jesus turns this into a lesson for the disciples. You ask, and God will take away the mountain. Now, clearly, uh, one one thing that perhaps ought to be added as we're talking about this to be complete is that this praying, believing, means more than just thinking God will do it. Sometimes when people talk about praying in faith, they just mean, well, you've got to actually really think it'll happen. Well, praying in faith, in my understanding, is praying based upon God's promises. We're not saying that we should, you know, you pray for, you know, a Ferrari, and God will give it to you. That is not praying in faith. There is nothing in God's word or God's promises that indicates that he even wants you to have a Ferrari. So praying in faith is praying based upon what God has said, based upon his word, based upon his uh, indication of his will. Uh, and, And when people turn prayer into some sort of an instrument to just gain their selfish will, they are not praying in Bible faith. That is not believing prayer. Believing prayer trusts God, not greed. So, but, but I think this is a really powerful passage. I think it's really encouraging to us. And I think there are so many times we face mountains. And we just say, I can't do this. There's a mountain. Well, look what he did to the fig tree. He'll do it to the mountain. Just ask. So I think that's really cool, really encouraging. What are your thoughts and comments? It's interesting how uh, it changes from the fig tree to the personal day and it looked like it was a good tree with like, a lot of leaves and healthy and then they come back and then it's withered. It kind of shows just how the nation is or how it looks good on the outside but now, but actually it's withered and dying. Very much so. And it's withered from the roots up as opposed to from the branches in. Because if you mess with the roots of a tree, it's going to be a more permanent withering than if you just mess with the, the branches. An eminently permanent withering. Yeah. Yes. I think that is the point. Other thoughts through verse 24. 
Remember this passage as you come to mountains. Remember this passage when you think, boy, I wish I was Solomon. You know, we need to have more trust in the Lord. We need to turn to Him more. It is amazing how many times we face obstacles, temptations, and we don't pray. We don't turn to God. He said, I'll take the mountain away. Ask me. And we try to do it on our own. We don't ask. It's amazing what the Lord does when we do ask. He is the God who removes mountains. And I think the thing that most impresses me about God's response to prayer is it's almost always more than I expected in a different dimension. It's almost always like I never even thought about that. <laughs> you know, I'd only ask this. Uh, God, God is well able. And for us to know this and not turn to Him in every situation, why wouldn't we? The point is not that we need some huge degree of faith. The point is we need enough faith to ask Him. That's what we need faith for. And, and you know, while we're imagining, you know, how would we ever conjure up that much faith, we don't even show basic faith to just turn to Him. And in 25 and 26, there is a condition. We've got to forgive to be forgiven. You know, and I think maybe he wants to add this so that it's clear God won't bless everyone. If, if we don't forgive, surely God will not forgive us. So there are some conditions associated with God listening to our prayers. And, and this teaching about forgive and to, for God to forgive you is, is in several passages in the Gospels. And uh, it, it is very worth reflecting on. Because when you think about it, how repugnant your sins are to God, and He has forgiven you, we have absolutely no right to refuse to get, forgive anyone who sins against us. We get, you know, so often we get annoyed with other people. And we hold a grudge and bear resentment. And how can I do that? He hurt me so much. What if God treated his enemies the way we treat ours? You know, we who have been forgiven so much, to be miserly about our forgiveness is unconscionable. What? Things you want to say through 26? My little mince 26. It's a uh, textual question. In other words, some manuscripts have 26, some don't. Think the majority thinking is it's probably a, a uh, place where some of the other Gospels do include that, and maybe it's brought over here from some of the other Gospels. But that's the question as to whether or not it's in the original text or not, because some of the copies have it, some don't. 
think this is definitely <coughs> a lesson that the disciples, the apostles, need to learn. I mean, we can remind you earlier in Mark 9 when they had tried to heal uh, the boy who had the demon by on their own strength and they couldn't do it. And I think kind of Jesus is teaching them here, you know, speak, you know, you need to go to God in prayer and ask these things. Instead of, like we mentioned in Mark 9, they didn't do that. They were all about, you know, they thought they could do it by themselves. And definitely Jesus trying to teach them before he leaves that this is not about you. Over and over again, he says this in many different ways. He's saying, you know, trust in me, have faith in me, not in what you can do. And again, he, he stresses this. Um, and I think I think we said that this before, but we can get the same way. In our service to God, we can get so self-focused and, you know, we have, we've overcome temptation for so long, we begin to doubt why we have. Is it of our own strength or of God's? Many times we take that for granted. I agree. Our strength is uh, nothing compared to the Lord's. Other thoughts? <clears throat> okay, 27 to 33. came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, what was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to him, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Alright. The Jewish leadership asked Jesus what? He said you could do this. Yeah. Who gave you the right to come into our temple and, and remove the furniture, you know, and, and, and do these outrageous things? Who gave you that authority? They, they are calling Jesus on the carpet to, to give a defense and to prove that he's got the credentials to do what he did. And how does Jesus answer? <clears throat> Good way to answer, don't you think? Jesus does that pretty often. And uh, what's Jesus' question for them? Baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Yes. Tell me whether John's baptism came from God or men. Now, John was a very prominent, popular preacher and baptizer. Many, many, many went out and were baptized by him. He was not an obscure figure. And so Jesus asking the religious leaders, was John the Baptist's baptism from heaven or men? That's a great question to ask about a lot of things. That's, a, that's an outstanding question. Does it come from God or men? We ought to ask that about every religious teaching, every practice. You know, Jesus is giving us a, 
a, a good uh, orientation as to the kind of question that's appropriate to ask. But they they start thinking, what? Politics. Why do you say? What are they thinking? What are they saying? If it's if it's from heaven, as it says, if it's from heaven, then he's going to say this. And then we should have followed it. And if it's from men, then all the people will be upset and we'll lose power that way. So we don't really have a good answer. And they don't, they don't actually try to answer the question. They just they go, all right, now, if we say it's you know, this, and if we say it's this, but they don't actually say, okay, we know it's this. So that kind of reasoning shows what about them? We don't care about the truth. That's exactly right. Now, if you're going to answer a question honestly, your reasoning should go in what direction? What's the truth? <laughs> yes. If I ask the question uh, to you tomorrow, was Sarah at the Witsits last night? Are you going to think, well, now, if I say she was, uh, and now if I say she wasn't, is that the way you're going to answer that? What are you going to think? Well, let's see, was Sarah there? Oh, yeah, she was. <clears throat> if you want truth, you're just going to ask, okay, is it true or not? When they start at, well, now, if we say this, if we say that... That tells me they're not seeking truth. They're seeking policy. They're seeking uh, some kind of an effect. The truth really doesn't matter to them. I wonder how many times we do that. How many times do we think, let's see, if I said, it, if I said this, if I said that. If you're trying to be honest, the consequences. Now maybe there might be a time you'd say, I don't want to answer. But if the consequences are determining what your answer is, as opposed to the honest truth determining what your answer is, then there's a problem. So I think Jesus exposes their hypocrisy with this question. Now they think if we say from heaven, well, what do they? Why wouldn't they want to say that? Because <clears throat> they're wrong. Yeah. Why didn't you believe it? If they say from men, why didn't they want to say that? Yeah. People thought John was a prophet. So they say, <laughs> here are the religious leaders of the day, and they're forced to admit that they can't determine whether one of the most popular teachers of their day had a message from God or man. That's kind of embarrassing. Kind of backed into a corner that wasn't a very good option either. And Jesus said, well, you're not going to tell me that, I won't tell you either. Now, this is not Jesus just trying to be persnickety. I think Jesus was trying to lead them to answer their own question. If they had honestly answered Jesus' question, is John's baptism from God or man? Well, what would the honest answer have been? From God? Well, what did John say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. And a bunch of other stuff that shows that Jesus had authority from God. That answers the question where his authority came from. If they would properly answer the source of John's baptism as being from God, and listen to John's testimony, they can answer their own question. They'd already know. 
where Jesus' authority came from. Jesus wasn't trying to evade the question. He was trying to lead them to answer it. But in the process, he was testing them as to whether or not they even had an honest question. No dishonest question deserves an answer. And their question was dishonest because they refused to give an honest answer to Jesus. It's like he was trying to expose their motives. and He did a pretty good job of it. I am assuming there were people listening in. He was walking the temple and these people just came to him. So I'm assuming he's in the midst of some sort of a crowd. Do you see why they didn't like Jesus? <laughs> Couldn't deal with him. You know, there's not a way to pin Jesus down and 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 leave him looking bad or 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 or, or ex- there's no way to expose Jesus as being wrong, as being foolish, as being hypocritical. Jesus always says the right thing and does the right thing in every situation. He's amazing. That'd be infuriating with that, John. He's the foe they can't defeat. But they failed to realize that if they would simply yield to him, he would be the greatest ally they could ever want. Exactly. Well, I'm sure they'd have done it if they thought they could. I don't know if this was for that as much as it was just a, almost an outburst of their outrage. I, I don't know. But maybe also, you know, trying to get him to say something that they can use against him. You know, if he claims he's got special authority from God or whatever, maybe they'll call it blasphemy. So I don't know. I can almost kind of see this in my mind. They ask Jesus, thinking they can corner him, and he throws that question. They're like, "Huddle up, huddle up, come on, what are we gonna say?" <laughs> Just this dishonesty about this is amazing. Yes, absolutely. Every time the question is, "What are we gonna say?" You know, what 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 are the consequences? And uh, but Jesus' question is a really good question. I think we need to get in the habit of asking that question more often. His answer really shows their dishonesty because they said we do not know, but then he answers, "Nor will I tell you." Sort of saying, "Yes, you won't tell. You do know." Yes. So anybody listening would say, "You do know the answer. You just refuse to say it." Yes. That would have made me mad if I'd have been the leaders. <laughs> Well, they, they had plenty of reason to be mad, given their agenda. This is one of those questions that they could not have come up with. Well, let's see. Um, there's a third option here. There's not a third option. There never is. Something's either from God or man. There's only two, two options on that one. <clears throat> not humble enough to recognize that Jesus is God. He's a whole lot smarter than they are. They keep thinking they can't outsmart him. <laughs> Other thoughts? Back to the earlier topic of forgiveness. 
why do we find forgiveness so hard? Why, why do some people go to their grave carrying their grudges, fully aware of what God says about those who fail to forgive? I would say because we haven't reflected sufficiently on our need for forgiveness and the forgiveness God has given. That's what I would say. I mean, I think if we really understand the forgiveness we've received. So we just gloss over our own forgiveness. I, that's what I would say. People who are impatient with others often haven't really thought about the patience God is willing to have with them. I also kind of think of self-importance. Think of yourself as better than someone else. Why would you forgive them if they're not as good as you are? Yeah, we take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> you know, if our dignity and our rights and our comforts mean nothing, then it's going to be hard for us to have a grudge against anybody. Anything else? Well, why don't we uh, stop here then and uh, work on the first part of chapter 12 next week. Appreciate your comments and your chance to look at this. I have a, a, a pair of questions, actually. Sure. Um, I don't know if many of you have heard the news. Um, we had a freshman at Perry Meridian High School who got hit uh, and he died.